Welcome to episode 18 of Shame Talks 99. The date is May 7th, 1999, and this is the first weekend of May. This is the weekend that the summer blockbuster season kicks off. And in 1999, the summer blockbusters were kicked off with one of my favorite movies from 1999 and one of my favorite action-adventure films to this day. Um, We're talking about The Mummy. The Mummy was number six at the film box office for 1999. It brought in $416 million at the box office. Its opening weekend was on 3,200 and a few uh, more screens, and that was a uh, $43 million opening, which was good back in 1999. Granted, that's like Doctor Strange basically did that on its opening night on Thursday night previews, but, you know, Ticket prices have gone up quite a bit in the last 20-some years. So, on average, The Mummy brought in about $13,000 per screen uh, back in 1999, which was a really good number back then. Um, This film is one of those ones that just makes me not understand critics at all. Uh, I've always disagreed with critics, usually. But this one on Rotten Tomatoes is sitting at a 61%, like a D-, minus, like... That just does not compute with me. I don't know anything bad that anybody could have to say about this film. So luckily the audience score is up at 75%, which I still feel is like really low. Personally, I put this well over 90%, um, maybe around 90%. You know, there are things that could have been better in the movie, but as far as the whole thing goes, it's so much fun. And uh, like I just rewatched it yesterday and still I have a blast. I laugh out loud at some of the comedy bits in it. And it's just the mummy is just one of those really fun and good films to watch. Um, in my research for this film, I learned a lot about the uh, the production and making the mummy. And I wanted to share a lot of that with you because I, I never knew any of this stuff. and I thought it was cool. The genesis of this whole project um, it went all the way back to 1987 uh, when Universal brought in George A. Romero to write and direct the film. Universal at that point just wanted a really low-budget horror movie, told him a budget of around $10 million, um, and they they wanted something kind of like Terminator-like. They wanted like an unstoppable villain that was chasing down their main character, um, and this one was set in the modern day. In, in Hollywood, that's the way to make things really cheap is to set things in modern day. Um, and it dealt with a bunch of scientists who brought the mummy back to life. That ended up not getting made. And a couple of years later in 1990, they brought in Clive Barker to take over the project. And then in 1991, he turned in his screenplay for the movie, um, which the people who have read it call it a very dark, violent and sexual film, which I mean, all three of those words make perfect sense when you look at like Clive Barker's history and then, you know, the other works of film that he's done. It sounds exactly on par with all of those. In an interview, Clive Barker admitted that his version was too weird for the studio to be interested in. And he also said that the character of the mummy was just like the starting point for his film and not even necessarily the main character. Uh, But the main character of his version was an extreme cultist Um, who happened to be the head of a contemporary museum and him and his cult people were trying to reanimate mummies and bring them back to life. So kind of bizarre, definitely not the version I would have wanted to see. A couple years later, we had a third version of the film and the the studio went back to their idea of a Terminator style mummy villain. And they brought in a director I really dig, who's Joe Dante. 
Um, John Sayles did a draft of the script for the movie, which was again set in modern times. With Universal trying to do such a low budget, like $10 million version of the thing, you really didn't have the budget to do ancient Egypt or even 1929 like we ended up getting. Like The only way to make this movie for $10 million, you had to set it in modern day so that you had you know sets and locations that you could use without budgetary concerns. So the third version, same, same thing. They had to set it in modern day. Um, Joe Dante was uh, championing for Daniel Day-Lewis to play the mummy. Um, it, this version of the script involved reincarnation, the mummy, you know, reincarnating into a, a modern character. Um, apparently there was a huge love story when the mummy did become reincarnated and stuff. I don't, I mean, it sounds meh. Uh, but I will say, if Daniel Day-Lewis had gotten to play the mummy, like, I really would have loved to see that take on the character. Uh, I feel like it would have been very, like, Karloff-like. I feel like, you know, with, with the way Daniel Day-Lewis works with his, I don't know if I want to call it method acting, but I know he gets very deep and involved in his characters. I feel like he would have studied Karloff a lot, so... I don't know if it would have been as good as the Arnold Voslo version that we got, but yeah, it's, it, it would have been pretty cool to see his take on it. So that's our third version. Our fourth version was in the works around 1994, where George A. Romero decided to come back and give the project another go. And this time, his script was more of a zombie-like plot. Um, it was also set in modern times, for the reasons I just told you, because Universal was still trying to keep this cheap. Uh, it involved a female archaeologist discovering the grave of Imhotep. So this was the first version where Imhotep was actually named and, and brought into the concept of this story. Um, she then ends up getting him to come back to life uh, because the archaeologists take it and like scan it with an MRI machine. And so the radiation from that machine somehow reinvigorates the mummy and brings him back to life little sci-fi-ish aspect there, but um, eventually this project got shut down, sadly, because George A. Romero, as much as he wanted to do it and apparently had figured out a way to do it for $10 million, he had a contract with MGM at the time, and they he still had to do another film for them, I believe it was, and so he was not able to get out of that contract, and so he had to abandon the project again. In 1995, we get another version that they attempted to take the 1932 The Mummy film. They attempted to take the 1942 sequel, The Mummy's Tomb, kind of piece everything together. And it kind of fell apart pretty quick because Universal realized this is going to cost a lot of money if we want to actually make a film in ancient Egypt and, and stuff like that. So this this sent the project into chaos for, for a long time because the producers uh, or uh, Universal ended up getting sold to a different parent company. And so like one of the producers who still had the rights to it was trying to take it away from Universal and trying to go do it low budget on his own. Um, he actually reached out to Wes Craven. Uh, sadly, Wes Craven turned the project down. Again, it wouldn't have been what we got. I don't know how much I would have liked it. I love Wes Craven, but I don't know what his version of The Mummy would have ended up being. So again, that that version failed. Finally, in 1996, we get the genesis of what three years later would become the mummy version of the film that, that we got that's amazing. Um, Universal finally decided, the new Universal with their new parent company, finally decided, let's actually put some money into this. 
Uh, so they finally agreed to up the cost of the budget, and they, in 1997, a year later, after it had started being developed, Stephen Summers called up the producers himself and pitched his idea and his vision for what The Mummy should be. He wanted to do like an Indiana Jones-style movie, which was a genius idea. He wanted to do something like Jason and the Argonauts, where the mummy isn't actually the main character, but as the main antagonist, he's just trying to prevent, you know, our heroes from what they were trying to do. Uh, like, they weren't there for the mummy, but the mummy just happens to be there and stopping them from getting, you know, the riches and the gold and the Book of the Dead and all that stuff that they were uh, the, the main characters were trying to do on their journey. So uh, Stephen Summers said that when he was a child, uh, the mummy of all the universal horror films, the mummy was the one that stuck with stuck with him the most because he just remembered being terrified watching the movie as a kid, even though it's like a G rated movie, like in his mind, it scared him so much as a kid that he wanted to do something similar with his version of the film. And the rest, film history, uh, you can take, you can look back to that uh, 1994 version of the movie when Romero came back that kind of um, gives you the, the, the basis of what we ended up getting with Evie. Um, and it, it, I feel like they probably, you know, pulled a few pieces here and there from some of the other scripts. Uh, Summer's probably, you know, either read them or had somebody read them or, you know, somebody at Universal was like, oh, there was this part of this other version of the script. We really liked that. Could you incorporate that into your version? And however he did it, yeah, that the newest version of the script was amazing. And it turned out to be this awesome film that we got. Um, so, yeah, let's start with the cast. Let's talk about the cast this movie. Brendan Fraser, insanely amazing actor who just has never really gotten amazingly good parts. He was awesome in Encino Man, like as Linkovich Lukowski or whatever his name was. He was absolutely great. Barely any lines of dialogue, all physical comedic action. So you can go from that physical comedic action to the absolute drama that he was able to bring to the film School Ties. Again, he was surrounded by a great cast, but he was just absolutely phenomenal in school ties. So in this movie, he plays Rick O'Connell, and he he just oozes with wit and charm throughout this movie. Like, I compared him to Indiana Jones earlier, and while they are very similar characters, Indy, while he was kind of comedic, he just, he was very dry with his comedy. Rick O'Connell just doesn't take himself seriously. He's just fun. He just enjoys life. He just goes with the flow. Um, and his comedy is much more out there, like exposed, like one lines of dialogue or physical stuff that he does uh, when he screams back in Imhotep's face, like stuff like that just makes this character much more appealing and much more fun. And you just want to go and have this ride with him. Um, Stephen Summers recently, or not recently, in an article I was reading, Stephen Summers admitted that the first person they offered the job to was Tom Cruise. Uh, he turned him down, which I then find absolutely hilarious that in 2017, he starred in Universal's Dark Universe reboot version of, um, of The Mummy, which was absolutely terrible. Um, other actors he reached out to, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, they all turned down the role. And it just so happens, as bad as the movie George of the Jungle was, it was at the top of the box office charts in 97 when they were trying to cast this movie. And who was the star of the crappy George of the Jungle? That's right, Brendan Fraser. Um, when uh, when Summers looked at Brendan Fraser, uh, he saw him as an Errol Flynn type guy. 
so cool. That's how he ended up getting the role. And thank God he did, because I absolutely love Brendan Fraser in this movie. Our main heroine, uh, again, I mentioned she seems to have been pulled from the 1994 version of the script. It's played by Rachel Weisz. Very talented actress, done a lot of really good stuff. A couple of years before this, in 97, she was in the Indiana-based film Going All the Way, which is based on Dan Wakefield's novel. We talked about it before on the other version of the Shane Talks podcast. Uh, stars Ben Affleck, absolute, one of my favorite movies. Filmed here a lot in Indiana, filmed at a bar not too far from my house. Um, so yeah, she is an absolutely amazing, strong female character. She's intelligent. She's a little ditzy, but like not in a bad way, in a, in a fun for the script way. Cause she's still very commanding, still very much in charge. She'll knows exactly what she wants and how she's going to get it. She makes mistakes. She's kind of a flawed character in that aspect. Um, in a good way again, like, uh, she reads from the book of the dead and kind of sets all of this movie into motion, you know, 45 minutes into the movie when they're already on their journey and stuff. But she has a brother in the film. Uh, he is played by an actor called John Hanna, who is known for movies like Four Weddings and a Funeral and Sliding Doors. Uh, also, later this year in 1999, we're going to talk about him being in the Denzel Washington film, The Hurricane. And that these three characters together, like trifecta of awesome. They're all funny. Uh, they're all and enjoyable in their roles. And it's it's a great leading cast that then you've got a lot of side characters that help out, especially with the comedy, with Kevin J. O'Connor's uh, portrayal of Benny. Benny is like the weaselly guy in the film. He betrays Rick, um, and, and he's the one that's leading the Americans to try to find the City of the Dead and the Book of the Dead. Um, and he has... he Him... And Brendan Fraser together are just some of the best comedic gold scenes in this entire movie. Uh, he is the butt of a lot of Rick's comments, uh, the butt of his jokes. Um, my favorite, uh, just the way he refers to him, my friend Benny, and like a very cynical and sarcastic approach to how uh, Rick O'Connell looks at Benny's character throughout the film. Um, finally, we have Oded Fair, who plays the chief of the Magi. Uh, his name is Ardeth Bay, and this character serves as the narrator for the film. <clears throat> the funniest thing about this character is we actually don't know this character's name through the entire movie. It's never mentioned once. The only reason we know that's his name is because of the fact that his name is in the credits. Uh, so really, really interesting that way. And uh, I, I failed to mention the fact that Arnold Vaslo plays our uh, title character of the mummy in this film. I'd consider this to be Vaslo's first like major film that he was in because he'd been like the, one of the villains in Hard Target. Uh, and he also replaced Liam Neeson in the Darkman sequels. But I don't really think I'd consider either of those Darkman sequels a breakout role since I'm pretty sure they were both direct to video. And I think I've only seen each of them once and they are not very good movies. Uh, so when Vaslo auditioned for this film, he told the filmmakers that he saw the character as kind of like a warped version of Romeo and Juliet. He told them that he didn't necessarily care about our main characters of the movie. The way he wanted to play Imhotep was just Imhotep had his goal and he just was he, he was trying to get his girlfriend resurrected, essentially. Like he didn't care about all the stuff that was going on around him. He would, you know deal with it in his own way, but he was focused on one goal. Uh, he called it a twisted version of Romeo and Juliet. And I think he played it really well. It was, it was a great memorable performance that was, you know, half CGI anyway. 
So I'm not going to spend the rest of this, uh, you know, going over the plot of the movie. You've either seen it and love it because I don't know why anybody could not like this movie. But then at the same time, like if you haven't seen it, go make the two hour time for it. It is a super fun adventure from start to finish. There's lots of great one-liners. There's lots of great action sequences and fights and shootouts Um, being set in 1929. It's not like you're, they, they, they shot it like it was an old movie. Like they didn't shoot it, you know, crazy John Woo style or anything like people shoot their six bullets and then they got to go reload. Like it actually shows them reloading their guns and stuff like that. So really, really well done movie. It's got everything. It's got like the sexual tension and romance and flirting that goes on between uh, Rick O'Connell and Evie is just, it's just so much fun to watch. The, the characters are excellently played by the actors and it just it's such a great film to to watch and and go on this adventure with my personal opinion on the movie i'm very glad they decided to make it a period piece the lack of technology and the like i was just saying about the guns like the fact that you can't shoot you know 97 bullets out of a out of a you know gun it just it it brings it brings everything back to reality like for the characters because they're they're in the real world you know limited by their their technology and they're trying to fight essentially sorcery and witchcraft in in the in the mummy character like it it does an awesome job of of you know putting those two styles together uh industrial light and magic did some amazing cgi in this movie it's like right at the genesis I've said it before, 1999 is kind of when CGI took a huge turn. Obviously, there had been CGI and other stuff. Like the CGI in Forrest Gump was pretty good. Um, But 1999 saw a lot of movies utilize CGI in new and advancing ways. Um, So far this year, ILM had only worked on a movie called October Sky, which we talked about back in January. This was their second film of the year. Their third film is what we're going to be talking about on the next episode, and that's uh, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Then they ended up actually doing 10 more movies this year. I'll try to remember to bring them all up when we get to them so you remember, but ILM, and and I thought for a second when I saw that they had done like 13 movies in 99, I was like, oh, that's crazy. I wonder if this was their, you know, first big year. Went back. Nope, obviously not. Pretty much every, you know, 97, 96, 95, they all had, you know, 10 to 12 movies that they worked on in all of those. So it was really cool to they had done so many more movies than I'd ever paid attention to before. Obviously I knew a lot of the big ones that they'd done, um, but things like October sky, I never would have had any idea that ILM would be the, the studio that would do, you know, the special effects and CGI stuff in that movie. So um, when I was talking about different versions of the film, uh, I was explaining to you that in the beginning, universal was trying to keep this movie at a $10 million budget. So it's funny the special effects budget for this version of the mummy that we got was $15 million for the special effects alone. Total budget for this movie, $80 million, eight times what they had originally wanted to do for this little uh, George A. Romero uh, horror film, you know, like when Universal finally decided to pony up the money and actually do a good version of the mummy, we got a good version of the mummy. So that's really awesome. Uh, sadly, in, in, in the real world of, of Hollywood, it made so much money. Um, the story goes that on opening day that the movie came out today, 23 years ago, halfway through the day, Universal called Steven Summers and their words to him were, we need another. 
And of course, that ended up giving us the really crappy first sequel, which I saw The Rock playing the Scorpion King, which I'm sitting here talking about how great ILM did on CGI in this movie. I need to go find out if they did the CGI in the Scorpion King, because the uh, one of the worst sequences of CGI I have ever seen in cinema is in the Scorpion King's third act. And it's absolutely god awful the way they make the rock look at the end of that movie like just to a baffling point that i don't understand how it was ever considered okay to be released in a theater sadly as bad and terrible as that movie was universal still decided to do a third one and that's when we got jet lee as the dragon emperor now, I'm going to be completely honest. Both of these movies, I've only ever seen them once. It's been like 20 years since I've seen either one of them. And I literally have absolutely no interest whatsoever in ever spending my time watching them again. Because I remember how much I hated them when I watched them. I can't point out exactly what it was about them I hated. But I, I just know for a fact that I hated both of them with an undying passion. So anyway, that is The Mummy, released on this day, May 7th, 1999, and it was just, it was an awesome time to go back and watch the movie again. I watch it at least once a year, because I'll just get in that mood where I'm like, oh, you know what I want? I want some adventure with some really great humor in it, uh, and this is always my go-to uh, movie when it's like that. Easily in my top five, probably, of all-time action-adventure films, I think it is, I think, Every actor brought their A game, and I think the script is absolutely phenomenal. I think it visually looks good. Um, it's got it's got some kind of creepy horror aspects to it. It's one of those things. I so the way they got away with a PG thirteen rating in it, but this still feels really dark. Uh, they utilized Alfred Hitchcock's concept of I'd rather make I'd rather not show you the violence and let your brain put it together itself because your brain will make it worse than anything I could ever show you on screen. So like, there's a lot of times where the murders happen in shadows or in clouds, or you just see the aftermath of the, you know, you see the body after the, the scarabs have eaten it, or like you see the corpse after the mummy has like, you know, killed the person uh, like in a, in a cloud of smoke or, you know, it goes into a shadow and you just see the body. Uh, I really think that that was a very effective choice and it allowed it to keep it at PG-13 and still give us some pretty gruesome sequences. A lot of the, a lot of the corpses look really believable and, and creepy. Uh, so yeah, highly, highly recommend this movie. I can't, I can't say it enough. If you haven't heard me say it 47 times already on this podcast, the mummy is one of my favorite films, uh, especially from 1999. So I actually won't be back for 12 days now. Uh, one of the things that's kind of weird about May of 1999, usually a month, like I said earlier, that kicks off the summer blockbuster season. Uh, nobody in 1999 wanted to release a movie anywhere near Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. First time Star Wars was, I mean, in 97, they did the re-releases, the George Lucas special editions, and they were pretty successful. But like this was the first time a brand new Star Wars story was going to be on screen. Uh, in a movie theater. So it's it was a big deal. And a lot of studios in Hollywood kind of avoided uh, May altogether. I think we have, we have a total of four movies in 1999 that were released in May. The Mummy, next uh, episode in 12 days, we're going to talk about Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. 
And then at the end of the month, I want to say it's like the 28th or maybe even the 30th, somewhere very near the end of May, we've got Notting Hill and a movie called The 13th Floor. So those are all the releases we've got here in May. It's going to be a small month for episodes, but I will be back in 12 days to talk about uh, The Phantom Menace. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in 12 days.